Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. I'd like to start out by reminding you of a couple things. Let me focus first on the event that's coming up because that's the urgent thing, right? Scottsdale, Arizona, March 2nd. Go to wealthformulameetups.com. This is going to be a fantastic event. Uh, it might even be filled up by now, but check it out for sure. We're capping it, I believe, at 100 people. We already have, we only have like 20 spots left, and I'm recording this probably a week before it airs, so I don't know if there's any spots, but this is going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be a, you know, sort of a meetup slash lecture with my friends Ken McElroy, uh, Dave Steele from Western Wealth Capital, Tom Wilwright, who's my CPA, also Robert Kiyosaki's CPA, if that sounds more impressive to you which I'm sure it does. And uh, we've also got uh, Damian Lupo and Christian Allen. And then we're going to get on Magical Bus Tour. Magical Bus Tour is going to take us all around to a lot of, actually some properties that we as a group or investor group has invested in and also some uh, other stuff in the area just to show what forced equity looks like with a professional operator. And you could, you know, you could read about this, but let me tell you, seeing is believing. So check that out at wealthformulameetups.com. Also want to point out that a lot of you have been asking about Wealth Formula Network and uh, what, what that is all about. It's the private community. That is the community of Wealth Formula Tribe who want to take it to the next level. It all started with the course. The course was a roadmap to real wealth, and that uh, comes along with a uh, basically a, a membership to this community that involves private uh, private Facebook group. Uh, it has a, we have additional content that we uh, we send out, and then finally, probably the most popular thing is we had do these uh, biweekly mastermind calls, which are extremely popular. Check it out at wealthformularoadmap.com. Now, as far as today goes, now let me tell you, if I've ever given you the impression that my life uh, since leaving surgical training has been all ups and no downs, I have unintentionally misled you. Uh, the first business I, I started, which was as an owner-operator, uh, it was a medical business, did really well, really quickly. It's true. It allowed me to start investing in real estate. But even that first acquisition was a disaster, and it turned out to be a $300,000 loss. Uh, and uh, now I consider that sort of my $300,000 lesson in due diligence, uh, how it should not be done, and all the things that I missed that I should have known. 
Uh, that's the way it's done. You hear that story all the time. And I'm happy to say that my fortunes with real estate have indeed sensed that very expensive lesson have been uh, quite good since that time. But some of my business ventures uh, in the meantime have been up and down as well. You know, a few years ago when my my initial medical businesses seemed to be slowing down, that was probably around 2000, I don't know, maybe around 2012 or 13. I was starting to look around for business models uh, within medicine that could sort of hedge my position against a down economy. You see, my first business as... Uh, you may know, was a cosmetic surgical business that was all cash pay and, you know, it actually still exists in the Chicago area. The second business that I came up with uh, was related to a business covered by insurance and I decided I would stop being uh, a full-time operator in that first business, allow it to develop into an uh, independent entity and focus on this second business. So that's what I did and that was around 2014 or so. And my hunch uh, was that the second uh, insurance-based model uh, that I was thinking of doing, uh, that I was on to something. In fact, I remember being pretty darn sure that I was going to kill it. Uh, I was right. In fact, that second model made a seven-figure-plus profit in its first year and pretty much saved uh, the lagging cosmetic business that I was talking about. It's not that that was doing terribly. It just was not... You know, it just had a bad year for some reason. It was an election, Obama re-election year, and a lot of things kind of seemed to go wrong. Anyway, in fact, not only did that new business save the old one, it seemed to have somehow driven a lot of energy into the initial cosmetic business. And it seemed like everything I touched at at that point was turning into another, you know, multi-million dollar business. So, hey, why not keep doing it, right? I bought some more apartment buildings, too, around that time, which was, in retrospect, the best thing I did. But I also ended up doing something which might have been, well, kind of stupid. But you see, I decided that if my cosmetic business could be successful in the third largest market in the country, Chicago metropolitan area, I could open up a few more across the country and really kill it. And I did the numbers, and I figured if, uh, you know, if I could do what I was doing in Chicago, again, which is a really tough market, say I did that in four other medium-sized market, I could potentially sell this thing for $50, $60 million, you know, and that would have been just like the entrepreneurial dream. Now, that in and of itself was not a bad idea at all, and I've seen similar things done. In fact, uh, a company emerged at around that same time, uh, that I was thinking about doing this, that was doing almost exactly the same thing. However, they had a couple of advantages over me. And the first one was they knew what they were doing. I knew how to dominate one city, and I had the staff who could execute what I wanted them to do. I did not have the operational skill set, nor did my staff, of replicating our business model. Um at least in you know in multiple states where we we not been ever before my competitor on the other hand was staffed with professional operators and the deep pockets of institutional private uh, equity making sure to guide their investment towards success and that brings me to the other major advantage of my competitor which was of course capitalization now, i was making a lot of money at the time so 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 in 2014 i was making so much money i figured hey 
I'd do the whole thing on myself. I actually honestly didn't even know I could go to private equity at that point. So that's that's the truth. Uh, but my competitor was using private equity money uh, with unlimited pocket depth that would see the project through despite, you know, ultimately a few years of multi-million dollar losses. Suffice it to say, I lost that battle. I lost a big, and after losing a small fortune, uh, well, which is a big fortune at the time for me, I should say, but I lost a fortune. I retreated back to Chicago, and the good news was that despite the failure of that big cosmetic expansion, um, you know, the two Chicago-based businesses were still killing it. But now, all that money was going into paying debt, accumulated debt from the failed venture. Now, when I think about what I could have made with that money by buying a lot more underpriced real estate in the Chicago area during that period of time, it's really downright mind-boggling and, well, a little depressing, too. Uh, A couple of properties I picked up during that period I sold last year for 500 and 600% returns on equity. Uh, and I should point out that they cash flowed through the whole uh, the whole period, which was not that long. Again, we're only talking about four, you know, about four years. Um, in hindsight, what I could have done. In hindsight, when I look at it, what could I have done differently, right? Because that's really what you want to learn from these things. Well, I could have just done what I said, which was take all that money and dumped it into real estate and other investments that were not inside of my core businesses, um, that might have been the easiest. Like, given how my businesses were going at the time, I could have also looked into private equity, which I mentioned, and at least for the portion, um, and I'm talking about the cosmetic business right now, right? I could have also looked into private equity for that expansion. Given how my businesses were doing at the time, I could have also looked into private equity like my competitor was doing, at least for the cosmetic business. And, you know, I could have let them buy a portion of the company and help me scale uh, with them, therefore taking some money off the table and sharing the risk. And that is, of course, known as the leverage buyout option, which I learned a little bit later, too late. Uh, Either option would have been better than what I did. And the truth is that, um, you know, it's all easy to look at all of that in hindsight and say, I should have done this, I should have done that. When you're making money like I was making it uh, for the first time, really, you know, this was when I was really, really starting to kill it. It's hard to see clearly and you can feel invincible. And I was in, I was definitely feeling invincible and cocky. Now, going back to that whole business two thing, uh, the one I started uh, to hedge the economy, it was a business that I knew could make a lot of money, but I also knew that it was not a long-term thing because it involved procedures that people needed and, and, and really benefited from, but which insurance companies were also, at the time, probably paying a lot more money relative to what they would pay for anything else. And I personally knew that was not going to last. Um, the insurance companies would one way and another you know, catch up with me. And in that regard, they were, there was a business that I considered as having sort of a plan obsolescence, you know, like sort of like an Apple computer that works great, but it has a built-in self-destruct button after a few years. That's the way I kind of considered um, that business. I never thought of that as a long-term play. Now, for a variety of reasons, after uh, a three-year ride, 
that business, that business too that I was talking about, in fact, did end, and that was last year, and it was a big loss. It was a uh, it was a like a seven hundred thousand dollar loss, and that's a lot of money for me too. You know, it's just you know it's a lot of money, and and you know it's a long story. It didn't again, fortunately, because I have created something with uh, multi prongs and you know quite a bit of hedging. Uh, you know, it, it it didn't kill me and made me stronger and smarter. But again. Uh, it's a long story. And if you're in Wealth Formula Network, by the way, if you're in that mastermind group, I'll tell you all about it, but it's probably not worth going into right now. Now, what were the lessons learned from me from all of this? First, my ability as an operator are limited, okay? I am an exceptional, okay, I will say this. I'll honestly say, I will toot my own horn here and say that I'm an exceptional idea guy. But someone else has to do the operational part, and they have to do it well. Similarly, I can identify a great real estate opportunity that involves value add, but I'm not the operator who can add the value. I'm going to instead partner with an operator who has a track record of pulling it off. Two, entrepreneurs have a tendency to chase shiny objects. That means they like to start new businesses. Once a business gets off the ground and it's successful, they lose interest and, you know, they they don't necessarily want to skill or spend a lot of time trying to work things out. They chase the next business. And I was guilty of that for sure. And now I make a conscious effort to say no. Now, the third lesson, when you are making a lot of money, don't throw all of it back in the business. If you do, you expose yourself to what is best known as single point failure. You see, if business two in my scenario had not bailed out my cosmetic expansion back in 2014, I'd have been toast. You know, these days I worry less about business expansion, more about constantly deploying capital into real estate projects that will stably create wealth over the next few years. In fact, you know what? My goal this year is to deploy no less than 60% of every penny I make into real estate and hopefully closer to 75%. And I'm going to do that by only investing with partners who are very, very good operators. I can recognize a good deal, but I need somebody to pull it off. So that's my goal for the year. Now, it's amazing how much you can learn in a short period of time uh, through a little bit of trauma and you know through a lot of... <laughs> And then, you know, by by having some serious failures, you know, one or two failures will teach you a hell of a lot more than a thousand successes. And that leads me to my final takeaway uh, for this particular episode uh, introduction, which is now listen to the people around you who have a little bit of scar tissue, right? Every highly successful entrepreneur and investor that I know has some kind of failure in their memory, um, you know, at some point that made them a lot better at what they do. It's it's almost like, you know, you, you get burned by something uh, physically and you know, you know, don't, just don't do that again. You, you don't do the same thing over again. That's how you learn best, right? Now, I remember thinking, um, you know, when I was younger, uh, that things that my dad said to me were crazy and that, you know, a lot of those things now when I think about what he was saying, you know, they don't sound all that crazy anymore. For example, I remember him talking about 
investing for cash flow all the time, right? And I remember him talking about that well before I ever heard Robert Kiyosaki talk about it. And of course, I ignored my dad because he's my dad. Um, And he talked about it incessantly, especially after getting slaughtered with tech stocks in the dot-com meltdown in the late 90s. I also remember him telling me that going to medical school was not going to make me rich and that I should just buy real estate. Of course, I was thinking to myself, it's not about all getting rich here, Dad. And, well, this was a guy who grew up poor in a third-world country, so it was hard to explain to him. His perspective was different. Uh, He thought it was silly that I took so much pride in being a you know, published in a lot of medical journals as a surgical resident while only getting paid $30,000 per year. Now, listen, in retrospect, I say these things, and there is truth in all the things he said to varying degrees, um, but none of it seemed useful to listen to as a kid or even as an ideological surgical resident in my 20s because at that point we sort of, uh, you know, we just always think that we're right. So if you are a millennial, make sure to search out, you know, for some people with some gray hair for opinions, too, while listening to the voices of your own generation um, that seem, you know, maybe ahead of the curve, because there are those definitely that are ahead of the curve. Speaking of millennials who are ahead of the curve, my guest today is one of the voices of millennial money. In fact, his blog, millennialmoney.com, has about 10 million readers Uh, which is pretty impressive. Uh, In fact, he just started a podcast pretty recently and had Tony Robbins on it, and apparently Tony asked him if he could be on it. Uh, Tony, by the way, has not called me yet. I don't know why. Anyway, his name is Grant Sabatier, and he is my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast this week. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession-resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula podcast is Grant Sabatier. Uh, I like the French pronunciation. It's very cool, by the way. In uh, 2010, Grant was 24 years old. He was unemployed, and he was living at his parents' house. He had less than $3 left in his bank account. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, he's just like your kids. <laughs> I'm just joking around with you, Grant. But, you know, it's 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 funny because it really, I mean, honestly, that's... 
probably, it's not that uncommon these days, right? Uh, but unlike most 24-year-olds, Grant had a plan, you know, and his plan, his goal was uh, making a million bucks and retiring um, in five years. And well, he, he did that. Then in 2015, he launched a website uh, called millennialmoney.com, which is just taken off like gangbusters and it has like 10 million readers now uh he's been on a zillion different media outlets and um now he's on wealth formula podcast uh to tell us you know a bunch of gen x and baby boomers uh, a little bit about his perspective on things which we always welcome a different uh a, a different perspective so grant welcome to wealth formula podcast hey it's a real pleasure to be on i'm looking forward to it so obviously, let's 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 start to where you uh, where you started. I mean, obviously, we have the you know this this story. You're 24. You also were uh, a graduate of the University of Chicago. Which what I do know about the University of Chicago is it's a very good school. So, so you're a smart guy. So you can't you know you're not starting out. You're starting out with one advantage over a lot of people. You're a smart guy. What was going through your head at that t- at that point? Yeah. So I graduated with a philosophy degree in 2007. I came out, I had a job by the time I'd graduated. Um, It was a job actually in the northern suburbs of Chicago. We were talking a little bit about that. So I commuted over two hours each way to the first job after college and realized that I was making a massive trade-off just in the amount of time that I had to trade for money. I figured out, you know, I ended up getting fired six months in because of the Great Recession. And I figured out that I'd traded 1,500 hours of my life for about $15,000 after taxes and ended up bouncing around three different other jobs over the next three years, never found the right fit, tough economy, found myself back home with my parents, no money. And they said that I could crash for three months, but they weren't (laughs) going to give me a dime. So um, square one for me, I sent out over 200 resumes uh, at the beginning of that period, didn't get a single call back. So I didn't have skills that I felt were marketable and really was not only starting from square one from a money perspective, but also from a career perspective um, and was one of many of my friends who had to move back home, but certainly was was starting completely from scratch. And being the philosophy major that I was, my parents were in their late 50s and I looked at them and they were still working and all their friends were still working. They were all still stressed about money. They never knew if they could retire. And I was like, you know, I don't want to go back into that cubicle world that I was previously in. What is money? And I literally asked that question, what is money? And I started reading about it and quickly realized that money is a human invention and we embed it with so much power and emotion based on how we grew up and how we live and where we're from. And so I started deconstructing money and why we think what we think about money and then just went all in on studying it. Um, you know, from so many different angles, most of what I found was really scammy. I was like, Oh, all this stuff that's written about how to make money is so scammy. Clearly someone's just trying to make a buck off me. What is it? Like, how can I make more money in less time? And I set two seemingly impossible goals to make a million dollars as quickly as possible and then retire as quickly as possible, meaning getting to the point when I didn't have to work for money. Um, and so that was kind of square one for me. And I had to first figure out what I was actually going to do. And I was doing a simple Google search and saw a Google mobile ad and learned that you could make 20% of media spend running Google ad campaigns. Fast forward 30 days later, just off of YouTube videos and free Google resources, I was Google AdWords certified. 
And I can literally trace all the millions of dollars that I've made, which is not 10 plus, but getting close ish um, all back to a series of free YouTube videos that I watched in my childhood bedroom. And so that was, I was off to the races and it took me five years, three months and six days to hit my goal and reach financial independence. And it was a crazy ride. Let me tell you. So the first, you know, the, the, what comes to mind for me is, I mean, you did what you did was, I mean, you're, you're an entrepreneur. I mean, that's really, you know, we, we talk about on the show at all the time. I mean, if you, if you can, um, you know, if you can be an entrepreneur and you, if you can be good at it, um, and frankly, that was my path. I mean, I'm an entrepreneur, right? Um, I happen, I'm an entrepreneur that happens to be a doctor is what my, uh, my CPA, Tom Wheelwright called me. Um, and, and, and then if you can do that, then yeah, there's, um, there's a lot of opportunity out there, but not everybody's an entrepreneur, right? So do you think you, anybody could do what you could do, what you did? Um, it's a good question. So you have to note that during this five-year period, I was working 90 hours a week and this is all I was doing. So people were like, how'd you do it? How'd you do it? And I was like, I didn't do anything else. You know, I was barely hanging out with my friends. I ended up making a lot of trade-offs that I wouldn't make in hindsight. With that being said, in my book, Financial Freedom, I write about what I call the enterprise mindset, which is simply looking at your life through the lens of how to maximize the value of your time, meaning how to make the most money as you can for your time. That doesn't mean you have to be an entrepreneur. It simply means even with your full-time job that you're taking every advantage that you can to make sure that you're making as much money as possible for your time. And then there's like small steps that, you know, the sum is much, much greater than its part. So if you're able to negotiate a raise and a bonus and then maximize your benefits and then connect with recruiters and increase your market value, and then you're investing more money and then you're side hustling. I talk a lot about side hustling, which is really popular amongst millennials. At one point in 2012, I actually had 13 different income streams. And so I was making money so many different ways with the sole goal of investing it. And so at this point in 2012, I was saving 82% of my income. And so all those luxuries, like when my friends like bought the new BMW or like the $3,000 luxury apartment downtown in Chicago, I was driving an $800 Nissan Maxima that I bought on uh, Craigslist and living in an $800 a month apartment uh, that was really crappy that my my wife then girlfriend wouldn't even come over. So I was making certain <clears throat> trade-offs because at this time, and this is important, I figured out that every $100 that I was saving, I was buying six days of freedom in the future. And so every time I went to buy anything, I was just like, no, the freedom is more, more valuable, more beneficial. And I was totally addicted to making and saving money. I mean, without a doubt. But what really surprised people is when I actually got there, you know, I built like a multi-million dollar company that once I hit my number, I walked in the next Monday and started dissolving the company that I'd spent so much time building. And this is an um, internet marketing company. Is that right? Yeah, this is, this is actually I had two digital marketing companies mm -hmm. um, running Google and <clears> Facebook <throat> ads for um, MBA programs and then one for, for lawyers and realtors. And so that was my, my primary trade, but I owned like a moving company for a while. I like invested in a boat cleaning company. I like 
did so many different things, yeah. flipped Volkswagen camper vans. Mm-hmm. I was doing anything that I could to get more money to invest. So in that sense, the principles themselves, um, anyone can do. And then the craziest thing, this is important, is like I was just addicted to get out, addicted to escape. But one of the things I realized is after I did it and I wrote my book, Financial Freedom, when I was reflecting, I realized that I didn't even need millions of dollars or to be financially independent. I already had like 90% of the benefits, even when I had like a year of expenses. I was just moving so fast that I didn't realize how much time and freedom and control I actually had. You know, we spent all our life chasing that next dollar amount or the job promotion or the seven figure salary. And in reality, you know, maybe we've already won the game. Well, that's true. Wow. And so, so you brought up a, a word I want to, I want to explore a little bit. You said you wanted, uh, you were addicted to, you know, this idea of the escape. What is the escape? What are you escaping? It's a great question. So I grew up um, in a household without a lot of money. My parents grew up in rural Indiana and they moved to DC suburbs when I was six months old. Um, my mom worked as a secretary. My dad cleaned office buildings. And so my parents really kind of started with nothing. Um, growing up, money was something that was always mm-hmm. talked about. It was very present. I knew that I had the least amount of money on my soccer team. You know, I, you know, my parents argued about it. And so from a young age, money was always something that was stressful to me. Sure. And I was, I was running from that. Um, I was also running from clearly an incredibly traumatic experience, bouncing around a number of jobs, getting laid off twice. You know, I spent my whole life doing everything that I was supposed to do. And obviously it didn't guarantee me anything, but you know, you're 24 and you're like, whoa, I did everything. And now what do I have? And so I was running from that feeling. And then the final thing was, you know, 24 moving back in my parents, every time I went down to dinner, even when they didn't say anything, I could see it in their eyes. There was like a worry and a disappointment and a concern. And I'd let down the two people who'd given me more opportunity than anything. And so I wanted to escape that. And so there was a lot of, I think, trauma driving um, my, what ended up becoming, you know, saving 82% of your income can also become money addiction in another form. Um, And so I had no balance whatsoever. Yeah, no, I get it. And, and that, and I totally understand. Let me let me let, let's back up a little bit because something else that you said kind of you know resonates a little bit uh, with things that I've said in the past, and I want to sort of expand on it. You did everything right to through college. Basically, you know, you obviously did well. You were you know if you're not well to do and you managed to um, you know end up graduating. Um, you know, if, if you were not well off to begin with, you didn't have a bunch of money to begin with. Maybe you're you know, you, you didn't come from necessarily a, a family of, of, of highly educated, highly professionals or whatever. You ended up at the University of Chicago. So you did everything right. Although I will say the University of Chicago as a Northwestern grad is also known as the place where fun goes to die. You do understand that. <laughs> That's true. That's true. <laughs> but I, I, I'm just joking around with you. But, but in all seriousness, you got a philosophy degree, okay? Obviously, not uh, the easiest degree, and and very logical, very smart guy, and so you followed the recipe that we're told to follow. You did everything right. You got good grades. You got a college degree, and then you 
And then one of the things that people, uh, I think, have a problem with, particularly mo- people who are in your situation, or situations like people in, of my audience who are professionals and smart people, we come out and we say, well, gosh, I, and, you know, I got all the A's. I did followed all of the curriculum, but wait a second. Now I'm done. There's no curriculum anymore. What do I do? And a lot of times in that situation, the only thing we have to rest on is conventional wisdom, right? And conventional wisdom in the financial world uh, is often influenced significantly by special interests. And so that leads you into a situation where you have a curriculum vis-a-vis conventional wisdom, but it may not be leading you in the right direction. Did you feel like any of that, does any of that resonate for you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I grew up in a world where everyone was kind of following the same advice, save five to 10% of your income, um, cut back those things that actually in reality are the things that make you happiest budget, you know, like people, the American dream, most of it's built on debt. You know, these are all things that's just like, I was told bigger house, bigger car, you know, that was the world that I kind of, I grew up in. And I realized by kind of looking at it very cold eyed that it clearly wasn't working for people or they'd be happier or they'd be retired, or at least they would be enjoying their lives. And one of the things I realized in life it's so much easier to chase that external thing. It's so much easier to be a stay asleep and go after whatever that thing is you're chasing. The much harder work is to actually stop. And often we only do this when we're, you know, a friend dies or we get diagnosed with cancer or we have a heart. Something happens that like we, we confront death in some way. And then that's when we reflect on, oh, is this the life I actually want to be living? You know, we have to come up to the edge of mortality to have that realization. But the harder thing to do is like to stop and actually ask yourself, you know, what am I, what am I doing all this for? And I felt like that was a question that no one around me was asking because they were just chasing, chasing that next thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing is just like, what does success mean to you? Like, and success was was like, you know, retirement at the end of the rainbow, retirement when you're in your 60s, you know, going out on a golf course. That's what I mean. I grew up seeing those commercials on television. That was it. It was like when you retire, you know, and it was just like, wait, why do I want to wait 40 years to live the life that I want to live? Um, and so I started to like see cracks in what I always viewed as being the traditional path of, of success and of life and um, and then the last thing, man, like I talk to people like, you know, the UFC, you get hooked up, you can do internships and you can talk to successful business people. And I, you know, I was like, okay, I'm going to be a business person. And so I went and chatted with, you know, a really successful attorney downtown Chicago and a successful management consultant. And one of the things they all seemed really, really stressed out. And then when, when I started thinking about it, I was like, you know, these are people who make a lot of money. They probably have partners they like. Maybe they have kids they love and friends. Like, what are they? What are they chasing so hard? They've already won the game. And I talked with one of the CEO, the COO of one of the largest SaaS companies in the entire world. I actually was in Venice 
uh, a year and a half ago at the gritty palace, like where all the celebrities go. I was like, <clears throat> had to catch a flight at 6am. And I was like, all right, I might as well stay up all night. And so I went to the gritty palace and I was having a drink and I chatted with this guy. I recognized him immediately, a really famous COO. And I asked him, he was there and he, you know, he could only meet his wife in Venice for a day and a half. Cause then he had to fly to Japan. And I asked him, I said, and he lived in Chicago suburbs. And I asked him, I said, Hey man, like, you know, dude, you've been on the road like 30 years. Like, like what was it worth it? Like, what do you do this for? And his answer was, well, I worked so hard to get here. Like now that I'm here, you know, I'm trying to take advantage of it. You know, he's like, he felt like he'd spent his whole life trying to get there, even though he had more money than he would ever need because he worked so hard to get there. He felt like he had to stay there. And I called him the lost road warrior because he's like, Oh, I wish I could spend time with my kids and, you know, but I'm on the road all the time. I was like, dude, you have more money than you'll ever be able to spend. Um, You realize though though, that those people, they don't want to quit. Right. I mean, that's oh, they totally don't that, want to quit. He not, also did. That's like totally the BS that you hear from people who are like that, that they're doing it because they're doing it for um, their family so that they can have this other future. Like I, I know like, um, you know, I know so many people like that. And the truth of the matter is they are addicted to the work mm-hmm. and that's what drives them. This yeah, or is, they don't have anything else. Right, yeah, they, exactly. and that is really what it is. And so that leads me to my next question in a way is, so so what is wealth? I mean, what to you, what is wealth anyway? I mean, if you've discovered uh, from a financial perspective when you're 24, it sounds like a million bucks is a lot, then you're 44 and you're like, a million bucks isn't very much money. So what is wealth in general? Yeah, I mean, wealth you can define for yourself, certainly. But for me... I did a simple exercise where I actually wrote down the 10 things that made me happiest. I was like, what do I enjoy doing? Like, who am I? Who is Grant? And eight of those 10 things were free. And the other two were pretty inexpensive. And I was like, you know what? Like, I like reading. I like writing. I like walking my dog in the park. I like going out to dinner with my wife. You know, like all these things that in reality, like, how can I build my life to have more of those things and how much money do I need to do that? And so the crazy thing for me is money. And I couldn't have expected this. The more money I made, the less I actually spent because simply having the ability to buy something became enough. I no longer had to actually buy it. Just having enough money to buy it if I wanted to became enough. And that was something that I just could not have ever expected. And then so I started trying to maximize those opportunities to do the things that I enjoy and realized that, you know, when I was 24, I used a retirement calculator and it's like, you need $3.5 million to retire. And I was like, well, what's behind this? You know, and I actually calculated, you know, I spend like around $45,000 per year. I live in New York City. Like I have more money. I could spend more money, but that's like the amount of money that I'm actually happiest spending. I don't need a bigger apartment. I don't need, you know, I I, I drive like a 15-year-old car. I don't need, you know, and yeah, there are some times when like I had to go to Seattle, you know, to see a friend a couple weeks ago and I'm going to drop, you know, two grand on business class ticket because I'm tired and I want to sleep and I want to be comfortable and I'll do things like that. But I spend less than $300 a year on clothes and, you know, these things just don't make me happy. And so for you, I mean, just everyone realized that like 
it's, it's, it's just all numbers. It's like the more expensive your lifestyle, the more money you're going to need. And you can control that. And once I realized that I could control that, I was like, oh, dude, I'm not going to work another 20 years to save up an extra $2 million. Forget that. And then the final thing I realized was that I actually needed less money to quote unquote retire at the age of 30 than I would at 65. Because if I could engineer my, my life the right way, I'd have another 35 years of compounding. And so this is one of the crazy things where I was like, instead of saving early and often, it was like early, often, and as much as you can. So I could actually accelerate the rate of compounding. If I could save a million dollars by the time I turned 30, I would be at a point where the compounding rate would accelerate at, a, at an increasing pace over 35 years. Mm. So even living off 4% of the money, I would be able to have four or $5 million and not have had to work at all for the next 35 years. And so I started playing around with the numbers and, you know, I got really crazy and had yeah. crazy spreadsheets. And, um, and so I, that's what I did. What I can tell you is, is, and, and this goes back to sort of your, your calculations and, and numbers. And we can get dive into that later. Cause um, you know, I am the enemy of the retirement calculator. I don't believe in them. And that's another issue altogether. But when you say um, retirement in general, I mean, what's, what are we what are we retiring from i mean like let me just tell you from my perspective um and like you and 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 in a different way uh you know i i hit a point where and today if i didn't want to work anymore if i didn't want to do anything i wouldn't have to but i want to right Totally. And for some of us, particularly, and you, I mean, you're, you strike me as a very entrepreneurial guy. For us entrepreneurs, it is in our blood to work. It is in our blood to create, to create enterprise. You know, my friend, uh, George Newberry, who's, uh, uh, who has a fund, he's over there and uh, he's in Chicago too. He and I were talking about this because we, we share some character personalities and he said something that I think was incredibly powerful. He said, it's the money for me at this point is not important. Money is just a way to keep score, right? So if you are, if you are doing something that you're excited about, and that could be you know, entrepreneurial uh, stuff in, in, in the case of me and George, uh, money then becomes, well, it's it's part of what we do. I mean, I don't know what retirement means. To me, retirement means death, right? What am I retiring? I mean, I retired from medicine, but I don't understand the whole notion of retiring. It's really about trying to do something now that you want to do for the rest of your life. And, uh, and, and, you know, for a lot of doctors, for example, these, you know, I'm not one of them. I'm a doctor, but I'm not one who likes practicing and seeing patients. They want to do this for the rest of their life. They're not looking to retire. So what do you mean when you talk about retirement? It's having the ability to live life on your own terms, no matter what that means. And so for me, retirement was I'm retiring from the corporate world and having to spend 40 years on the road, smoozing clients and selling projects and dealing with all the HR issues that my employees always had and dealing with all the management headaches and all the stuff. Sure. So it's shifting from doing what you had to do to now doing what you want to do. Massive difference. Um, so it's retiring from something. But not, not retiring from being industrious in general. No, I mean, work makes us happy. It makes right. us human. Exactly. We need to do it. 
Exactly. And that's a big point I, I like to bring because I'm with you. Those commercials drive me crazy because to me, retirement, this idea that you work your ass off for 30, 40 years so that you can play golf for the last 10 years of your life. It's disgusting. If you make it. I mean, that's all a sham, man. Right. And that the whole point is that, you know, that that's it is a whole sham. Right. Retirement is this sort of. um you know, something that's created by corporate America to show you a light at the end of the tunnel <laughs> just so you keep working. All right, let's get back into the nuts and bolts of it. You talk a lot about saving. I'm not much uh, in the way of, of sacrificing lattes myself, but um, I do drive the same Prius I had when I finished residency, because even though I, I'd rather drive a, a fancy car, but every time I'm more interested in, in buying more real estate or buying something that makes more money because it just brings me more joy. So let's talk though, if I am, you know, there are, there are some millennials listening to this show. There are people who are aspirational. So what's the quickest way to six figures? What's the quickest way to seven figures? What is your formula, your retirement formula? Yeah, great question. Um, So the fastest path to six figures I personally believe, especially without having like any skills, if you're starting from scratch. And I tell this to like Uber drivers. I tell this to lawyers, man. I meet so many young lawyers that are just working like 80 hours a week and making 60 grand. And they're just like stressed out all the time and have all this debt. The fastest path to six figures without a doubt is finding some way to make money in the digital economy. And for me, that was running Google ad campaigns. I realized that I could actually make more money running Google ad campaigns than I even could as a financial advisor because I was making 20% of media spend. So every brand that I could get to spend a million dollars on Google ads, I'd be getting $200,000. And I was like, wow, I only need five of these clients to make a million dollars before taxes. I only need 15 of these clients to make enough after taxes to have almost as much money as I'll need. So Google AdWords, running Facebook campaigns, learning how to build websites, one of the things I believe and still believe is that skills are future currency. And so most of the jobs in 10 years, they haven't even been created yet. Mm-hmm. So how can you best set yourself up for success? And so, for example, like say I lost all my money tomorrow and I had to start from scratch. I could go become a graphic designer. I know Photoshop. I know InDesign. I could go build websites. I know JavaScript. I know backend and front-end programming. I could be a designer. I could be – I could – you know, I'm a writer. I could write white papers or corporate white papers. I could be a salesperson. I could be so many different things. I could do do business analytics for a company. I could run, uh, you know, the back end sort of network infrastructure for different IT systems. I could, you know, just the list goes on and on. It's and the thing is, the I've insulated thing, myself. The one thing is, all those things in. share in common is it's entrepreneurial, right? Oh, totally. I mean, mean, it's the entrepreneurial mindset. And then realizing this is the massive shift for me is that most people think that time is money or that money is time. But that's like the biggest myth of all because like money, like, and that's the biggest thing. If you always think you have to trade your time for money, you've completely missed the point. 
money's infinite. You can always go out and make more money, but you can never get back this moment. This moment is really all there is. And so the slight mindset shift of like, okay, investing as much as you can, obviously. So, you know, your money can make money, just like you said, not buying a car, buying income producing assets. Those are like, you're making probably, you know, hundreds of dollars in your sleep. You know, I make about $45 an hour, even when I'm sleeping on like just completely passively. And then the other thing is I encourage people to, to try to become what I call little Ubers. And you have to realize that like Uber or Lyft, they don't actually drive cars. All they do is they're connecting supply and demand. People who need a ride and people who will give them. They don't actually have to do anything. They're just connecting the people. And so becoming that person in your own life, don't walk dogs, become the person who connects someone who needs dog walks with dog walkers, you know, because then what happens is you no longer have to trade more of your time for money. You're brokering other people's time. And all of a sudden, you know, when you can only drive your Uber five hours a day, you can't have 40 hours in a day. All of a sudden, now you have all these people doing it for you. I mean, this is the crazy thing. People do this in New York City. Every single Uber driver that you get in New York City is not the person in the app. Like what people do is they sign up and then they get all these drivers for them. And there's like all these different sub and side economies. And, you know, I mean, they're so creative. Um, And so figure out ways to do that in your own life and realizing that time is not money at all. Time is so much more valuable um, as, as, you know, you can always go out and print more money, make more money, but you can't get back the time. And that holds people back, man. And that comes down to a vast majority of Americans think they deserve a raise, but then they don't ask for one. Yeah. You know, know, simple things like that. When it comes to time, it's funny. I used that exact same quote (laughs) that you you used. I've I've used that for years. But then last year I altered it or two years ago when I uh, two or three years ago when I left medicine for good because because I had a lot of time. Right. But um, so I had to alter it because I realized that I wasn't uh, feeling like I was being productive. So I was, it was, it's time is, or, or money, time, you know, time and money, you have to dissociate the two, right? You got mm-hmm. that right. But once you get the time, the real wealth is time well spent. It's not just time because you can have all the money in the world and you can have all the time in the world, but sometimes that can actually be pretty detrimental for people. So time well spent in finding what your mission is, is kind of what my, uh, my own discovery along that uh, path has been. But you had time and space and money to probably figure out that mission. Exactly. And that's what, same thing with me, man. Like you asked me five years ago, what your purpose in life was. I had no idea. Like, what's your why? Like people that asked me like, what's your why five years ago? You know, I just wanted to smack them on the head. Like I was like, I have no idea. Like, yeah, I think our, Nobody yeah, does exactly. when they're 24. <laughs> I mean, geez, you know, I don't but know sometimes I you have to open up to life yeah. and create space for, you know, you can't chase your why sometimes. You just have to give yourself time for it to show up. So one of the challenges of the audience that you're speaking to today is we're, you know, we're a little, we're, we're probably a little bit older than a lot of people you're talking to. And we're maybe some of us say I'm a, Say I I just spoke to somebody today who was a uh, a dentist, and she does really well. I mean, a few hundred thousand dollars a year, et cetera. And um, she said, I like what I do. Uh, here's the problem I've got. Um, I'm developing uh, re- uh, stress injuries from repetitive motion. And I can tell you from an ex-surgeon, I totally understood that. Her problem is not 
her problem is now taking money uh, and deploying it appropriately so that she can maintain some kind of a lifestyle. So a, a lot of us, and of course, when we hear you and you're talking about doing Google AdWords and and you know digital uh, digital businesses and stuff like that, for some people it sounds rather intimidating, right? Um, what do you say to somebody who's like, man, I'm 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 working here. I'm sure I'm doing well. I'm making a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. Um, but what I'd really like to do is be able to, you know, slow down. And I don't have another 40 hours a week to, first of all, learn all about this stuff that this kid knows. And second of all, uh, it, and, and to actually implement it and create another stream of income. What do you say to those people? Yeah. So first, YouTube is your friend. Um, anything you're curious about, type it in there. Spend two hours a week just like going down the YouTube rabbit hole, I call it, and you're going to learn more about some things than you've ever thought possible. So YouTube is your friend. Matt, use it. The other thing is you know, there's multiple kind of paths to financial independence and saving up a ton of money is one. But I actually think the easiest way is to build consistent recurrable income streams and focusing on those instead. And so I often say that real estate is, in my opinion, the fastest path to financial independence. And I'm not talking about, you don't need like huge apartment buildings. And, you know, I talk to people who are like, oh yeah, my 3000 unit portfolio. You know, it's like, sure, if you want to be there, I'm sure like George Newberry has like 10,000 rentals in downtown Chicago and stuff. But like, I'm just talking about like, even like in Cal Southern Cal, anywhere really, get two or three, you know, places and set it up so they're good investments and have them put off enough cash, you know, after expenses to cover your living expenses. Boom. You've won the game. And not only that, the rents are going to go up two to 3% a year. The properties are going to appreciate. And all of a sudden, you know, you can take, we can do a cash out refinance on one and then buy a fourth property. And all of a sudden you have four properties. You don't have to go crazy, but that's more money than you'll ever need. Put us off more money than you'll ever need forever. And then you can go, you have enough money to cover yourself. Go do whatever you want. Be an artist, yeah. be a painter, travel for a while. And this is the thing too. We talked about being addicted to work. You know, often people that are addicted to work, whether it's the status or the success or the money they're craving, they've often never given themselves in their entire life, maybe because it's uncomfortable or they don't know how, just just space and openness. You know, one of the things I try to do is like give myself permission to do nothing. And that's the hardest thing for driven people to do. Hardest thing. It took me like two years to figure this out where every Sunday I just go and lay under a tree for a couple hours expecting nothing. And sometimes when you just like open to life in this way, just go somewhere because you don't know what's going to show up, you know, just say, okay, I'm taking six months off and I'm just going to go, you know, live in, live in, you know, live in Europe or live in Southeast Asia. I don't know what I'm going to do. Like, that's the best, most freeing thing. Not no, You have enough money, go do this. You don't know what you're going to do. And all of a sudden, you're going to be sitting at the bar, having a drink, and someone's going to sit down to you, and you're going to strike up a conversation, and you're going to learn that they're an art dealer from the Bahamas who knows this person. And then they're going to, you know, and all of a sudden, just through a series of conversations, your life's going to be transformed. And this whole thing that you never knew was possible or existed or you didn't know about yourself is just going to show up. 
but we're so close. We try to optimize like every 10 minutes of our life, but life happens when you like let go of all that stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's when you say like, forget like number, forget how much money you have being the scorecard, like, like choose to just exist, choose to exist and be truly open to the world and meet new people. Talk like that. That's when life shows up. It's not like chasing that thing that you already know how to do. Like to me, there's this beautiful Alan Watts quote, like the British philosopher. And he said, life is like music. It's meant to be played. And when you think about like music being played, like it's just going here, it's going there. It's not knowing what's going to happen. The one thing we think in, in life, like we always try to control every variables, but the thing that actually makes life exciting is not knowing. And so the paradox is we try to control everything in our life when in reality, what we really want is excitement and adventure and those things that come from letting go of some of that control. Yeah. And that takes some just like, you know, especially when you're successful, like people listening to this making, you know, mid six figures. I mean, yo, if you're, if like, if you're happy and you look around and love your life, you've won the game. Cool. Pete, like, but if you're making that kind of money and you're unhappy, like you have more advantages than everyone in this entire world to like take two or three steps. And this is the final thing. Everyone I've talked to all over the world about this, the people that are unhappy, they think it's an all or nothing thing. Oh, I need to quit my job or I need to quit this medicine practice, whatever it is. Often people are like two or three steps away from a life that they really, really love. But we live in such an all or nothing world where they're like, they feel like they have to jump in the deep end of the pool when in reality, just like putting a couple feet in would make them so much happier. And often those two or three things have to do with money. Save up six years of expenses and then just quit just to see what happens. You know what I mean? Obviously harder to do if you have a family and mortgages. Yeah, and right. And that's where, <laughs> that's where it gets complicated, down. right? That's but where even it, that, even that, maybe the best thing for your family is to take a step back and make, you know, some type of radical change. Just mix it up. Mm -hmm. Mix up. If you're unhappy, just mix up your life a little bit and you're going to learn something about yourself, man. Because I can tell you, ease and convenience are the enemy. If your life is easy and convenient, like that used to be the goal when we were like living out on the prairie and living in caves and had to keep roof over my head, but that's not how you grow today. Right. Ease and convenience. If, you're, if your life is easy, you're not going to grow. I mean, without a doubt, 100%. So um, we've talked about, we've talked about obviously, um, you know, real estate, uh, uh, I, I uh, as as the audience knows, I, I'm I'm a huge proponent of real estate. And has been my, uh, you know, my my focal um, point as well, and um, and the and a number of people also invest in real estate through private placements, et cetera. We do that. What uh, what else? I mean, you, you talked about saving. Obviously, you got to have money to invest. So I always I have this equation I always use. Um, which you know I'm a I'm a math science guy, so you ripped off this Newtonian physics momentum thing, which wealth equals so so you know uh, mass times velocity is momentum. So momentum of wealth growth I see is um, mass times velocity, and then I also add leverage to that. So so mass is how much you invest, velocity is your yield, leverage is other people's money. That's what I say typically. Do you agree or disagree with that? Sure. I mean, inertia is the driving force in life. 
And it's hard often if you've spent years on a certain stream floating down a river Mm -hmm. to stop yourself and get off on the shore or walk the other way. And so realizing that it's always easier in life to keep doing what you're doing, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, and having like whether it's confronting death or whatever it is, just realizing like, okay, am I on the right river that I need to be on and where is this going to lead? And, Mm -hmm. you know, everyone listening to this is a smart person just fast forward like three years and be like, okay, if I stay on this river, where am I going to get? And often that's probably means you're going to have more money, but are you also going to be happier, you know, and do that for 10 years. And then you can do the whole exercise of like, you're at the end of your life looking back. What else? But in terms of your actual uh, nuts and bolts, other ideas, you talk about real estate, you've talked about entrepreneurship. Is there anything else that we're missing? Oh, totally. So I think, um, I mean, I'm a huge investor in just a total stock market index fund. I'm a huge index fund investor believer. Um, I have no bonds. I've never owned any bonds. I think the whole bonds by age is just a full crock and just something we need to get rid of completely, obviously, because there's not sort of a correlation between the two anymore. Um, The other thing is I think just I'm a massive investor not massive, massive in my relative scale in Amazon. <laughs> so, um, Amazon you know, and I think, you know, <clears throat> sometimes you have come, I'm not a huge uh, purchaser of individual equities, but sometimes I think there's a once in a generation uh, type of a company and Amazon is that company. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I've been buying Amazon since 2010. I, you know, all the cat, like now probably half my net worth is an Amazon stock, but I correspondingly just, just that company is just, I'm not even saying buy any stock. I'm just saying that company is just so, you know, it's just such a, you know, not a sure thing. That's the wrong thing to say, but it's like Amazon will be at $10,000. Yeah, it's not going anywhere. Is, I guess, no. So. Oh my gosh. So, it's just the beginning, dude. The government's going to split it up. That's what's going to happen. Yeah. And it's going to be five companies and that split's going to make everyone a lot of money. And then, yeah. I mean, they're just, they're just, they're, they're the, they're it, whether you like it or not. And I actually, that's the tough thing, man, because the more I read about like, you know, socially responsible investing and educate myself on, you know, the fact that there's a big difference between like not doing bad and doing good when it comes to investing. And that's a whole rabbit hole that I'm going down now. Amazon causes a lot, you know, it's a tough, you know, there's a lot of pros, a lot of tough spots there for a company like that. And meaning and pops you know, and things like that. And uh, yeah, um, I get that. Let me ask you this though: Have you when do, have you experienced a massive uh, uh, stock market correction yet? I mean, I wouldn't say a massive one. No, I mean, I've been because you, you, you were broke in two thousand ten, so you yeah exactly. Out so on I've been riding. I've been riding a pretty fast, pretty fast bull. Right. Um, I personally, I mean, I've had you know months where things have dropped like considerably. To me. I was able to kind of learn how to check my emotions at the door once I realized that you only lose money when you sell. I mean, a loss is only when it's realized. <clears throat> so like, you know, I even got a message from my dad like a couple of days, like maybe a week ago. And he's like, oh, like, you know, stocks. And I was like, oh, they're down. And I was like, dude, I keep telling you this, man. Like, it's only like you've only lost money when you sell, you know? Um, uh, yeah. And so for me, you know, 
like my portfolio being down, you know, three hundred thousand dollars, five hundred thousand dollars. It just doesn't doesn't phase me at all. Yeah. Well, you and I differ there. Then that's so the systemic part of that is what bugs me the 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 lack of it being necessarily in my hands. But but um but good. Um, tell us a little bit about the blog. Tell us uh, and and more importantly, perhaps uh, you have a book coming up. So tell us about those. Yeah. So millennialmoney.com is my blog, um, you know, all over the world. I get traffic all over the world from not just millennials, a lot of boomers, generation Xers looking, being like, whoa, what are these kids up to? I mean, more and more of my friends are just like choosing to live life in a lot of way, different ways, um, which is super cool. So you can learn a lot about me there. But yeah, man, I uh, had the opportunity to write a book with um, – Penguin Random House and my editor, she's the editor for, you know, uh, the Dalai Lama and Brene Brown. She's very famous and she hadn't done a money book. And so I partnered up with them and I spent the last year and a half writing Financial Freedom, a proven path to all the money you'll ever need coming out in a bunch of languages all over the world, February 5th. Um, You can buy it now at at a bookstore and online on Amazon, financialfreedombook.com, all those places. And it's my journey from $2 into everything we talked about today. Um, It's 350 pages of pure goodness around all the things I was taught about money and why they were wrong, why most uh, information about money that you're told is either like damaging or so old school, it's obsolete. Um, Here's how to think about money and time very differently. And, um, you know, if you want to, no matter where you're at in your own financial life, get to that next level as quickly as possible, you know, it's a really scalable strategy. So everything from, you know, changing how you view money to deconstructing it to I have 11 questions you should ask yourself before you buy anything. I talk a lot about money and units of time, not just units of money. I built calculators for the book at financialfreedombook.com slash tools. You can enter in your own info and determine how much like if I pay a thousand dollars for this thing, here's how much freedom I'm trading for it in the future. And then, yeah, optimize your full-time job, launch a side hustle, scale it, uh, become a full company, make more money in less time in literally every single way um, that I did. And then now looking back that I figured out I could have done and wished I could have done. And then how to invest that money in the most tax efficient way. So I go into really granular details about how to maximize, uh, you know, all of your pre-tax opportunities. And, um, and then I get all the way to like, okay, now that you have enough money, What's the withdrawal strategy that's best suited for the type of lifestyle you want to live? And so it's an end-to-end scalable strategy um, that if you want to do what I did in five years, you can do that. If you're not that crazy, um, you know, you're you're, going to learn a lot. Um, The last thing I wanted to make it, I've read over 400 personal finance and investing books, and I wanted to make it, um, in my opinion, like one of the highest ROI. ROI money books out there. So most books are like one or two ideas and then a lot of fluff and padding around it. Like um, this thing is just nonstop. Uh, (laughs) Here's what you do next. Here's what you do next. Here's the trade-offs. Here's what you can do. Here's here's what, you know, and I'm really excited um, because early reviews are really solid and I'm really excited to, at the end of the day, money only matters if it helps you live a life that you love. 
and everyone deserves that. And doesn't matter how much money you're making, you could be making seven figures a year. Some of the most unhappy people I know are the ones making seven figures a year. So even if you're in that position, this book might even be more beneficial for you to help you recontextualize money and what it means to you in your life. Um, Cause life's short, man, life's short. You gotta love it. Gotta enjoy your time. And so that's why I wrote it. Um, and I'm really excited. Sounds great, man. So what was the title again? Financial Freedom. Financial Freedom. And we will put that in the show notes as well. Grant, thanks so much for being on Wealth Formula Podcast today. Hey, man, this is a real pleasure. Thanks for giving me the good questions. And it's a pleasure meeting you and being on the show. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Make sure to check out Grant's book. He has got a lot of great ideas that are certainly thought-provoking for sure. You know, maybe buy it for your favorite millennial, someone who doesn't want to listen to you. Uh, make sure they can at least, you know, hear from somebody of their own generation uh, who can talk some sense in them. Now, one thing I will say, um, you know, it, it, uh, and I'm sure that a lot of you know that I disagree with Grant about um, his notion that you don't necessarily lose money unless you sell and and his reference about stocks. I mean, theoretically, that may be true. But if you are playing with only a couple years before retirement or you are in retirement, it's hard to put such an optimistic face on it. Now, if you believe the people from ITR Economics uh, who we've had on the show, uh, we had the show that was the Raging 20s and the Great Depression in the 2030s, um, if you believe that in the 2030s we're going to see this confluence of national debt, social security, health costs, um, your stock portfolios could be absolutely decimated just when you need to cash out. And so that's why, uh, in part, I am personally not a fan of throwing money at ETFs, at least for the long term, with the expectation that the trajectory will be in the right direction just as you need it. Now, obviously, all this is very complex and it's up for debate. There's plenty of people, not only millennials and Grant, but others who will completely disagree with me. But I couldn't, um, but I had to make sure that you understood where I stood on that, as you know. That said, I also applaud Grant for his efforts in creating financial literacy for his generation. And that's really important. At the end of the day, we share that mission even if we don't uh, agree on a few points. So make sure to read the book and let me know what you think. Um, with that, I want to also remind you of the Scottsdale event. Come meet me in person. Check it out. This is going to be awesome. Uh, WealthFormulaMeetups.com. And also, uh, if you would be so kind, go to WealthFormula.com and uh, click on the iTunes button. Write me a review if you like what I'm doing. Uh, the five-star reviews and the subscriptions really help with iTunes rankings. And listen, um, you know, my, my I don't have 10 million uh, readers, um, but I do have a very, very high-quality group of people, and it's always helpful to reach more of them by ranking higher in iTunes. So do me that favor. Go to WealthFormula.com. Follow the instructions at the top there. Give me a five-star review, and that's it for me this week. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. 
Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.